Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R again on this Sunday for another hour of science. We are thrilled to be here with you. In the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are we going? Jesus, you're perky. I am. It's a, this weekend, we're having, you know, the, is the Indian summer, as they call it. You is know? that what's it's happening? Like, it's lovely, isn't so it? So you, you're a climate person, yeah, so you kind of appreciate this. I know. 25 for the next few days. going to be is stunning. That right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even check that. Yeah, I just yeah, assumed yeah. we'd... Uh, uh, yeah. Cruised into the winter period. No, autumn, summer's back just for a f- just for a few days, but uh, you know, I'll enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah, well, that's cool. That's good to know, folks. We've got a huge uh, show for you today. It is uh, well, day of immunology is coming up, so we've got a range of guests to talk about the importance of immunology. If you haven't worked that out over the last few years, I'm not sure you ever will. But uh, nevertheless, we've got some really cool stuff to talk about. And then a little bit later, we're going to be talking about a new potential diabetes uh, formulation of medication. Like, best way to put it. Uh, which is very, very cool, and it's not available yet, but we're going to learn all about how it works, so that will be uh, that will be very interesting. In this studio with me now, though, first up is Dr. Caleb Dawson from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Caleb, good to see you. Good to see you as well, Shane. It's, uh, now, last time I saw you, you were getting an award. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, what was that about? That was for the uh, Griffith University Discovery Awards uh, from Research Australia. And, yeah, we had a, an awards night. We were on the same table. Yep. It was wild. We had a wild night. I don't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a good night. Um, but you're here under a different uh, umbrella today because you, you're doing great work there at the Walter Eliza Hall Institute. But you're here to tell us about the Day of Immunology, which, as many of our listeners will know, every year we dedicate at least part of a show to the Day of Immunology and, and some of the things that are, that are happening. So what, what's going, when is the day, first of all? When's the date? The date is the 29th of April, so okay. next Saturday. Next Saturday. And what can people do? How can they engage with, with the immunologists? Well, there's so much to do. Over the next two weeks, we have a lot of events all over Australia. So coming up uh, this week and next uh, a range of discovery tours. So people can go into the research institutes that are doing the immunology research meet the scientists, ask them whatever questions they want, see the research facilities. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great opportunity. And, and which, which are some of the highlight facilities that are open? Because there's a, there's a few around, aren't there? I mean, it's quite a few. Yeah, so we have uh, open days at WeHi, at Peter Mac, RMIT, the Doherty Institute, uh, MCRI, St. Vincent's and Monash. Well, yeah. yeah, that's a lot, yeah. And do they get to go into the, the big, you know, PC whatever number labs will people get to suit up? I think there's uh, different opportunities at each <laughs> institute. Um, yeah. I don't think they'll all be uh, suiting up and working with uh, dangerous pathogens. Oh, um, damn it. It's not the real experience, is it, Ellie? No. Come on. Still, I, want to, I want to get into the, get the into full the gear. gear. This yeah. is the whole point, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and there are, I assume there are a range of talks uh, coming up as well that people can listen to? Yeah, that's right. So on Friday night on the, on the 28th, there's a, um, a public forum on skin immunology, which you're going to hear right. a lot about yeah. later in the show. Yeah. Uh, and there are also school workshops for high school students, an online careers seminar, and then even interstate, we have science in the pub in Tasmania. In WA, we have fun educational activities at the Telethon Kids Institute, a public forum on uh, the gut's role in childhood illness in Queensland. Right. Yep. Uh, New South Wales, another careers day, public forum on the environment and how it interacts with our immune system. Uh, more school workshops. Uh, and, yes, yeah, so there's there's so much cool going stuff. on. Yeah. yeah. And is there a website people can go to to find it all? Is there somewhere where they can look? or is? Yeah, you can go to dayofimmunology.org.au. Easy. Easy. All right. Uh, Caleb, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for coming in. It's very, very good to hear about all these activities going on. I guess over the last few years, it's probably been a bit truncated in terms of what was possible. So some of these labs are opening up again now, um, presumably with very good precautions. Yeah, and, that's right. Yeah, and people can see that. So that's great. Well, get on that website, folks, and, and have a look. Now, we have our first guest, um, one of the speakers from the Day of Immunology sessions, 
Dr. Holly Anderton from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. Also, welcome, Holly, to the studio. Thanks for uh, having me along. Now, you work on skin. Yes, I do. Yeah. Skin's skin. the coolest. Now, is it true that like half the dust in our home is just us shedding skin? Well, I haven't personally like measured it, but that's uh, that's certainly that, what I've heard as well. Yeah, it's, so, it's like half skin and half dust mites eating your skin. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your breakfast, folks. Uh, <laughs> disgusting. Anyway, um... Now, of course, skin is one of those weird parts of the body where it does so many different things. And presumably, you know, we've heard this from one of our colleagues, Laura, who's often on the show, um, that you know, a big part of our immune system is contained within the skin itself. Tell us how that works. Well, I mean, the thing is, the skin's it, it's the outermost part of our body. It's mm. the thing that gets exposed to the environment. Yeah. Um, it's protecting all of our squishy insides that, uh, you know, if your liver gets rolled in dirt, that's that's not going to work out so well. But your skin, <laughs> your skin can deal with that, you know. So it, it's, it's really interesting because it's got to be able to uh, be responsive, protect us from mm. this environment. You, you know, it's got to be, be quick to um, to do things if you if you have an injury, things like that. Yep. But it's also got to be careful not to overdo it right. because it's just all the time being exposed to to um, microorganisms, to to all sorts of chemicals. We put chemicals purposely on our skin. That, yeah, some yeah, of don't do. rub don't rub some cream in your spleen, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I mean, that must be uh, an interesting thing for you to look at when you look. If you went into the average of the cosmetics shop or, you know, part of a shop, and you just look at some of those chemicals that are contained in there, I mean, it is just endless, it seems, that, yeah, that list it, of contaminants. It, it, it astonishes me in some ways. And, and, and there's obviously a huge industry, and, and, and there are things that are effective. But um, I, sometimes I'm just like, half of the stuff which people just put on, I don't think it's even doing anything because our skin's so good at <laughs> keeping things yeah, yeah. out as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, and in terms of, um, I suppose there's what would be called active ingredients there and non-active ingredients. Are, are they are they both in the same sort of concern camp for you or is, or is there sort of more concern over some of the more active stuff that's really penetrating our skin? Um, I, I would say that... Uh, my concern, like my, the the kind of thing. Sorry, to get to the point where where you're allowed to put things on on people's skin, you know, I'm not really too worried about most of it. Right. Yeah. It's more how much of a waste of time a lot of it. Is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> waste I, of time and money yeah. a lot of it is. Yeah, yeah. Put all this there's, stuff on. It's fine. There, or ever, that's, yeah. And that's not, that's not to say I want to disparage the entire industry. There's definitely like valuable things, yeah. but that, that doesn't work unless you, you've got the right ingredients, the, the the things that help you penetrate the skin, yeah. and and they're actually doing something valuable for it. Yeah, so. I like to see. I'm getting all this intel because as a radio guy, it's very important that I keep my skin fresh. <laughs> got to keep looking good. You've got to keep looking good. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you said, you know, if you roll your liver in dirt, you might have a problem. But um, how does the skin and the immune system in the skin compare to, say, the lungs and so forth? Because our lungs are permanently being exposed to the external environment as well. How do the two sort of match up? Well, um, I actually, uh, I find it really interesting to look at the, the um, interaction between the lungs the skin and the gut right because what they are all are barriers they're they're barrier tissues so they all kind of encounter some of the same issues yep um they have some of the same uh the importance of being responsive versus not overreactive right and there's a reason why a lot of the um immune diseases that we come across have um they cross over so people who have got eczema are more likely to develop asthma right that's, that, yeah, that's right. what's called the atopic march. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah. children who have eczema are more likely to, to also develop asthma and hay fever. Again, you've got your, your um, mucous membranes. They're, yep. they're all barrier tissues as well. Um, there's a higher rate of um, – there's associations between uh, inflammatory bowel disease and psoriasis. Right. Um, we, I think a lot of the time with these uh, inflammatory diseases, uh, they get treated as – uh, with what symptom you show up with. Right. You show up to dermatology because you've got skin, sorry, problem. you've got yep. skin problems yep. or you show up to gastro because you've got tummy yep. problems. Yep. But I think often they're actually all connected. Uh, connected. They're part of the same phenomena. And a lot of it is to do with that, that your immune system, this really complex interaction of, of so many different cells that are, that are monitoring um, for, for, to be responsive, 
overreacting yeah. and that can happen in, in all these different, all these different aspects. Parts, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's really interesting what you just said, Holly, about the, um, you know, you go to a gastro person or a dermo for, for whatever problem you have. Is there any move in the clinical space to be moving more towards this kind of holistic look at the immune system? Yeah, so that's such a, that's such a great question because I think it's one of the biggest difficulties in it. Um, and one of the things that... Uh, Royal Melbourne Hospital have been doing. It was actually after uh, we high we we had a bit of a restructure and we created this uh, these themes and the the theme that um, both Caleb and I are in is infection immunity and inflammation. Mm. And the hospital were like, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. And they've kind of done the same thing. And we actually had a grand round um, on Thursday this week. Uh, where it was a patient from immunology, um, the clinicians were presenting, but it was uh, all of the uh, like doctors from all these different departments coming in and seeing them from their perspective, mm. um, and then sort of tying in the the scientific perspective from from the the wee high side of things as well. Yeah. So yeah, the way the way that the the medical system structured can be, I think, difficult to to break out of that defaulting to this, this type of disease, it's that type of disease. Yeah. But there's definitely a, a recognition that more often than not, they're actually a bit more systemic and... And, and, and the, I, the idea that you can silo off parts of the body is just such... It's can odd, I, can I say it? 19th century yeah, thinking? Like it really... Yeah. I mean, especially like the immune system is the one area, and I know we do a lot of this work, as do others, with regards to cancer therapies and so forth. And, you know, if we, we thought about that 30 years ago, the idea that our biggest asset might actually be our own immune system yeah. um, for fighting cancer and the fact that you know our immune system fights cancer all the time. That's why we don't get it when we're 20. You know, and it does it well. And then at some point, there's a failure, a failure point, or you know, something happens and, and all of a sudden that process is not working. But it's, they're all interconnected. And I think this comprehensive managed care model has got to be the future of healthcare. Yeah. It's, it's saved us a fortune too. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the, it was interesting after after we had the grand round, um, uh, talking to a rheumatologist who had, who hadn't seen this patient, right. and and they said, um, if I had like if they'd come to us, we would have uh, probably diagnosed them, uh, like given them a different diagnosis potentially given them exactly the same treatment because mm. the underlying problem, which was to do with yep. the, the uh, cytokines that their immune cells were overproducing, yep. would have been the same, but the diagnosis might have been different. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's like it's fascinating. You it? kind of come to the same point, so it's still, it can still work. Yeah. But and as you say, we have people have complex medical conditions with multiple morbidities and so forth occurring mm. at the same time. You can't just treat symptoms because the interchange between medications for one of their conditions and another can be highly complicated as well. Yes. Now, let's let's get back to skin. Uh, very exciting. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think most people, when they think of their skin, they, they think of it as a somewhat impenetrable barrier, but that's not really the case, is it? It's it's a transmitter in many regards of yeah. materials. So it, it is a barrier, but it's a it's an active barrier, I would say. Right. It's got to uh, – there's constant monitoring of, of the, the types of microorganisms that are living on the, the mm-hmm. surface in there, and um, – there's an interaction between the the skin cells themselves, the microorganisms that live on your skin, and immune cells that are, that are sort of like going, oh, are you supposed to be here? Right. Okay, you're fine. Oh, we don't like you. We've got to do something about that. Um, because it's also a bit of a symbiotic relationship with, with mm. especially the microbiota. Yeah. Um, if you yeah. get... Well, you know, one of the, the common features of a lot of inflammatory diseases is dysbiosis. That's where you get essentially the wrong microorganisms taking over. Right. Um, a lot of people with eczema who have flares, it's because they've gotten an overproduction of, of Staph aureus, for example. Right. And one of my absolute favourite stories is a, 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 clin- a clinician uh, uh, I, I know very well who he prescribed for one of his eczema patients a dog. Right. Um, and that was because the dog, like, licking the, this kid's skin uh, was giving the good microbiota to prevent the overgrowth of... Is that right? And it worked really, really well. What about cats? Uh, I, you use I, a cat? I, <laughs> <laughs> I got cats. <laughs> I've, I'm, a cat, I'm a cat person, so I've yeah. got cats too. But, uh, yeah, that just, that just tickled me as much as anything else. It was, like, it was such a clever, yeah. clever idea, a different way of thinking about it rather than, rather than thinking about... How to sterilise it. How, how can we keep yeah. giving medication yeah, to stop yeah. things? How can we actually track it back to what's, what's triggering things? And... Yeah, 
yeah. the idea that prescribing a dog. They ended up being my neighbour as well. That's how I learned about oh, it. I, cool. I knew the doctor and I knew my neighbour and I yeah. found out that they knew each other. And, so yeah. in, in terms of like with many of these diseases, presumably this is where that balance is out of whack. So in, in your work, I mean, presumably that's what you're looking at, trying to write the balance between the immune system being too reactive in some areas and not reactive enough in another. So how do you approach that? So I'm really, yeah, I'm really interested in, in understanding what, what's happening at the start, what's kind of initiating this, mm. this overreaction. Um, and I mean, I, I never intended to be an immunologist, I guess. I, it was an accident. I, I really studied mechanisms of, of cell death. And, and right. when in a clinical setting, we talk about cell death as either uh, apoptosis, which is which is this programmed, really immunologically silent. It, it, it doesn't cause a reaction right. in theory. Yep. Um, or necrosis, which is where you see like nasty falling apart cells. In the cell death, like the science side of things, we're like, there's like 10 different types of programmed cell death, and some right. of them are really inflammatory, but because they're genetically programmed, you've got the um, potential to uh, intervene, to target yeah. them medically. Um, and we know from preclinical studies that that some of these forms of cell death can really cause a, a inflammatory response that, that really activates this immune system, the, the, the immune cells beyond what they should be doing. Yep. Um, but we haven't been able to really... It's a lot harder to show some of that in people. So we, we suspect it's probably a, like a root cause that, that's driving these inflammatory um, uh, immune responses, but mm. it's really hard to sometimes make that, that, that yeah. crossover. Yeah. Oh, look, it's, it's wild stuff. Now, Holly, we're out of time, but I think if people want to hear more, they can come and hear you give your lecture. Yeah, Friday night. Friday talking, night? Talking about uh, the immune response to skin damage. Right. Whereabouts? Uh, Doherty, isn't it? Yeah, the Doherty. Oh, the Doherty Institute. Yeah. So on the corner of uh, Royal Parade and Gretton, what used to be Gretton Street, now there's a big train station box there. Um, but yeah, it's a That's beautiful, it. beautiful theatre. Yes. Yes, uh, I like that theatre. We've given a few talks in there. Thank you so much for being well, a guest on Understanding Go Go today. Folks, Dr. Holly Anderton from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute giving a talk this Friday at the Doherty Institute, uh, the Doherty Institute for Immunity and Infection. Triple R. If you are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R, in the studio with us now is Dr. Claire Gordon. Now, Claire is a senior research fellow in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Melbourne, an infectious diseases physician at Austin Health, clinical lead at the Northern, North Eastern Public Health Unit, and the director of the Australian Donation and Transplantation Biobank. Did I miss anything, Claire? No, that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> I love it when you get these ones, you know, Seven jobs. Yeah. But it just shows how accomplished, I guess, are, really. It's That's amazing. Great. Yeah, we don't take people unless they've got at least no, five jobs. <laughs> now, Claire, so you're a clinician? Yeah, yeah, my yeah. background's in infectious diseases. Right. So what does that what does that look like? How do you get into a, sort of a clinical space where, you know, one day you wake up and you think, you're looking at GP, you're looking at anaesthetics, you're looking at various things, you say infectious diseases? <laughs> well, I've always been interested in everything. So when I was considering specialties, I was like, cardiology, that's just one organ. That's just a heart. Okay, that's, that's too narrow. <laughs> Whereas um, when I considered infectious diseases, I thought, well, that's very, it's not only humans, it's all organs, but there's public health aspects yeah. to it. So it's a science aspect to it. So I just knew I would never, ever get bored. Yeah. Well, and look, any cardiologist listening, you know, you're still good. <laughs> no, you, you're very you matter. Important. It's okay. You matter. It's okay. It's okay. Podiatrist, you matter. <laughs> That's right. um, but Claire covers it all. Yeah. You wanted to do it all. <laughs> yeah. I, I also found out very early on I wasn't very coordinated. Ah. Surgery, any sort of procedure was out. Yeah. So even if I wanted to, I couldn't be a cardiologist because I couldn't do any you know, yeah. angiograms. <laughs> and the cardiologists are back. <laughs> okay. Uh, now you, you you are looking at aspects of the immune system. That's why we you know, have you on. In particular, the sort of these non-circulating T cells. So these, I, I think we just give people a little bit of an understanding. There, there's parts of our immune system that zip around the body, and then there's parts that are fixed. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We say that they reside in the tissues, and um, they're there, poised at the front line, ready to respond. So they're just like waiting for something that's not quite right to mm. to start to act. And how do they? How do they differ from the other immune cells in the body, for example? Are they as good or are they only good at the sort of initial, we'll give it a crack, but 
the big ones down the back are going to have to take over later. Yeah, they have several roles, and it also depends on what organ you're in. So we just heard about the skin, how mm. you have to uh, balance between um, protecting you against invading uh, microbes that come in, but also you're like covered with microbes everywhere. So you, you yep. don't want to react to those. So it really depends on whereas the liver if you do roll the liver in dirt, going back to what Holly said, you would want the immune system to act really quickly. So how reactive they are depends on the organ that they're in. Yep. Um, but they react quickly, but they also call in call for help right. quite early on. So they, if needed, if it's a big threat, then they'll bring in other immune cells from the circulation. So they'll like, yep, there's a problem here. Come help me, guys. Right. So so these T cells, if the, the ones I've got in one organ are different from another organ, or are they all the same? Yeah, we are trying to sort that out. Yeah. Um, they're they're st- definitely still T cells, and within the tissue resident memory cell group, there's subsets within that. And in fact, if we look at one uh, group of tissue resident memory T cells in the skin and think they're the same in the liver, we are, and we see how they function so do they secrete cytokines? How well are they calling in for help? They're actually very different. And so we think that they're restrained in places like the skin where they need to do that balance between damaging things versus harmless things compared to the liver where they really do need to function at a higher level. And so we think there's an influence from the environment that the T cells are sitting in. So there's stuff in the skin or there's other cells in the skin which dampen the response right. that the T cells are able to do in the skin. Whereas in places like the liver, then they're, they're, um, they're, cues to say, right, be on high alert, have a low threshold to, to call for help and to respond. Right, because it's unlikely things will get to the liver. Much less internal, likely yeah, than yeah. the skin. It does it does drain the gut via the portal system, yep. so there's a little bit of stuff that come in. And we do see tissue resident memory T cells in the liver. In fact, we see them in all organs around the body. Yeah, what does the liver do again? Like, what does it normally do? <laughs> it, it filters, um, it, it cleans, it has a really cleaning yep. job removing toxins um, from the blood. Uh, it has a portal venous system which drains the gut. So anything that comes through the blood that's just been to the gut, like nutrients, um, mm. fat, for example, all goes by the liver, gets cleaned and then gets put out through the circulation. And then there's also the systemic circulation that's just going around us all the time. That also goes through the liver. Wow. So, so we, we need the liver. Yeah. <laughs> so, so don't swallow any dirt because it will. <laughs> but it's always interesting to me, like when you think about which which organs we can easily transplant, which ones we can handle being without. So, so you can go on dialysis if you have kidney failure. Is there an equivalent for the liver? No, there's not. You'll need yeah. a liver transplant. Right, yeah. and you can transplant part of a liver. This is my understanding, right? Yes, you can. You can split it up. Um, yeah. So, like a lobe, one of the lobes of the liver could be transplanted, and the liver's very good at regenerating itself. Wow. And it's one of the strengths of that or the uniqueness of the, the liver. But, yep. yeah, absolutely. Wild stuff. Now, you set up something called the Australian Donation and Transplantation Biobank. Sounds very impressive. It's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Um, what, what exactly is that and what's the purpose? Yeah, so when I started looking at human um, T cells, I realised very quickly that we needed to get human organs to look at. And they couldn't just be samples that were put in fixative because that would kill the cells. And we needed to look at live T cells in order to work out, well, what are they actually doing in our body? How do they work? How do we sort of work out the molecules Mm. that are important to develop drug techniques? Um, And because the type of T cells I look at are not in the circulation, that's why they're tissue resident, I can't just go to a, a person and, and get a blood test. I, I right. need a piece of lung, liver, gut, yeah. or whatever. And it <laughs> and needs to be fresh. Um, and they're not compliant either. <laughs> like Ailey, she'll give you part of her liver in a second. <laughs> right? Sign me up. <laughs> so um, I partnered with Donate Life Victoria right. and the um, Austin Health Liver Transplant Surgeons to um, set up a program where um, organ donor families, at the same time they're being spoken to about uh, giving the gift of uh, an organ for transplantation, would they also uh, like to donate to medical research? Um, And this program is is really uh, unique worldwide. Um, I think there's only a handful of other places that do it the way we do it. But we've managed to integrate the donation to research aspect of it as through the Australian Donation and Transplantation Biobank as part of the routine Donate Life activities. Wow. So that it's very seamless. It's all integrated um, and, it, and it's, it's going really well. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so in that sense, can, can families opt to either donate to medical research or is it is it or, you know, donate, donate to somebody else or is it 
is it more that, oh, well, actually this organ isn't going to work as a transplant organ, Yeah. Um, so that means we'll likely give it to research how does it how does it all work yeah so um donation to transplant always comes first before donation to research and so we would only um consider or accept samples from organs that weren't going to transplantation um and in fact we um because we're integrated with part of the donation to transplantation program we would only be available to sample um organs if they if that donor actually was having surgery for organ donation so it's a really great opportunity for donor families to really make their gift of donation go even further it's like a real value add i think it's it's interesting and just just picking up on that point how how much is the decision on the person versus the family and how does that how does that play out yeah that's a really good question so um you know organ donation it's comes at a real tragic time in a, a person's life and, and for their family as well. Um, people are considered for uh, uh, organ donation if um, they are either brain dead, so the, mm. the patient or the organ donor themselves is normally in intensive care, yep. they're, they're asleep, they aren't able to communicate their wishes. Right. So the entire conversation is, is done through the, the donor family. And um, I think that's why it's really important for people in advance. You, you can't predict you know, things that might happen to yeah. register as an organ donor and make sure they let their loved ones know that that's their, that's their wish, should, should it come to that. Yeah. So how quickly do you have to look at this stuff from the donated organ? I mean, is it, is it, you know, do they have to give you a call straight away? (laughs) Quick, get down here quickly. Um, I mean, how long do these things last in a lab environment where you can actually investigate the cells that you need to before the organ itself Yes. Can't be anymore. <laughs> so this is one of the times where I'm glad I look at T cells and not other innate immune cells like dendritic cells. So um, we consider the samples, or we need to use the samples um, while they're uh, physiologically relevant. So mm-hmm. if you think about an organ like a kidney is retrieved and that needs to be um, put into the the recipient patient in a particular time frame. We work within those same sort of time frames. Um, I'm lucky with T-cells because once I've extracted the cells from the tissues because they're embedded in there, we have to kind of do stuff um, to get them out. It's hard to do that in the skin. It takes eight eight hours to to get the T-cells out of the skin. Liver, it's relatively quickly. It's an hour. But I can freeze my T-cells and then do some really sophisticated analysis later on. But I've had colleagues where they can't freeze their cells because they just die. So um, they're there all night long (laughs) doing sequencing and flow cytometry um, literally all night after a donor. So they might have received the sample at midday, but they'll be doing the analysis at 4am in the morning. Every, every time you mention something here, I hear that you've you've looked at some of these career paths and you've gone, surgeon, no, 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 I'm not very coordinated. <laughs> Staying up late for those cells. No, no, I want the ones you can freeze. I know, <laughs> you, yes. You've made some good that. choices, um, some very good lifestyle choices. And in terms of the, the cells themselves, I mean, how many, you know, you talk about cells. How many are we talking about to do this sort of analysis? Is it tens or is it millions? Yeah, so when I first started off looking at T cells probably 13 years ago, um, and we were doing something like RNA sequencing, we would need like 50,000 cells in right, order to yeah. do that. But these days we can look at the single cell level, so just one cell um, really with some really modern techniques. And so if I have you know, 3,000 cells, maybe 10,000 cells would make me more comfortable that it was going to yeah. uh, work and we'd get enough depth and we'd get enough detail. Um, but the technology has improved so that we can, we can look at the rarer cell populations that we couldn't do before. And that's important with the immune system we've heard how complex it is mm. you really do need to look at that really granular um single cell level to work out how it all fits together because they're all different they're all doing different functions yeah now your boss uh when you're not in here with us is our our very own dr laura or, yes. or you would call her <laughs> professor laura <laughs> i call her professor too <laughs> professor um and, and i mean she's pioneered a lot of this work and a lot of people aren't aware of that but this t-cell this resident t-cell work is essentially her baby in many regards so at it must be quite something to work in the lab where much of this started. Yes, yes. And that was, Laura was probably, I was very fortunate, actually. I did a lot of my early training um, at Oxford and right. Columbia University. And when I, like, I've got to return to Melbourne, I've got a family now. And I was like, wow, Laura's here. 
what yeah. a win for me and just being able to fit into that lab's been a really an amazing opportunity uh, a lot of her work um, has been done using mouse models mm. of tissue resident memory t-cells and some fantastic breakthroughs and so i see this as um, a bit of a translational aspect looking at human um, tissue resident memory immune cells to sort of you know, is what we're seeing in mice actually what happens in humans? Yeah. And as we start to look at things like therapies that target um, tissue resident memory T cells, either to make them a better fighter against infection, um, more active against cancer, or alternatively, if they're going a little bit crazy, being haywire and causing autoimmune disease like psoriasis or um, vitiligo, you know, how can we manipulate these cells? And and because it's such a complex T cell milieu, we want to make sure we target the right cells because there can be like offsider effects that and, we don't want. And when you when you look at that comparison with like the mouse model and so forth, I, it, it's fascinating to me because we had a, we had a guest on a few weeks back that was talking about the immune, immune system of crocodiles, and there's <laughs> and there's co- some consistent elements between some aspects of that and and humans, you know, which means somewhere back when we had a common there was a common point in evolution. Is, is that what you're seeing in the mouse model comparison to to us as well that there's some common pieces but maybe humans are a bit more complex is that yeah yeah. that's pretty much what we're seeing i still think we're in early days with the humans just because we need this um access to the actual human tissues as well and i think mice models mouse models are really important um because you can you can you know when a mouse has been infected because you've given the infection you know when they've been vaccinated but with humans it's it's obviously a lot harder to kind of to pin that down and as you alluded to um humans are very different we have had decades of exposure to pathogens and the environment whereas mice are bred in very clean facilities right they're very you know uh, six to eight weeks old when yeah. they're infected, and they're all the same. And they're all they're genetically they're all the inbred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of things that we still need to untangle there. But the initial signals are is that aspects of the mouse immune system are very similar to the human. Yep. Now, just just before we um, finalise the details of your presentation and so forth for day of immunology, how does this, all this work you're doing? Because you're a clinician, so how does that play <laughs> into that clinical space for you? Like, yeah, given, given like yeah. how intense and sort of you know bleeding edge this research is. I'm very lucky to work with Laura, um, who really takes uh, charge, or we partner very closely together with the science aspect, but what I bring is access to clinical samples. So Mm, it's not just the organ donor samples that I've mentioned, but um, we also collect samples from patients who are intubated with COVID, for example, or patients who have um, allergic reactions to drugs on their skin, Um, also partnering with clinicians uh, to look at liver cancer and lung cancer. So I'm very much trying to connect the science with the clinicians so that we can start working together. Um, We are already working (laughs) together, but even more to understand this complexity of, of the human immune system and how it relates to infections and cancer and autoimmune disease. Yeah, sounds fabulous. Now, your presentation for Day of Immunology, when's that coming up? Uh, so it's this Friday, uh, same time as Holly. I'm chairing the session, so I'm probably um, kicking it off. So Friday uh, at the Doherty from 6 o'clock. Um, I'm talking about Skin uh, 101, so very sort of basic level of what is the immune system um, in the skin and how does it you know, relate to pathogens and the microbes that are just hanging around us all the time. Yeah, I love the fact that you're chairing the session. So you can sort of say to yourself, can I have another five minutes? Over? I know, yeah. <laughs> Take your time. No problem at all. <laughs> Our next speaker, great. Uh, you got five minutes. <laughs> you got five yeah. minutes. <laughs> well, Claire, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's really exciting work and uh, good to hear that – I hope Laura's treating you well. Any, any <laughs> issues? Absolutely. Any issues? You talk to us, we'll, we'll take care of it. Um, but it's a fabulous space to work in and it's I mean, it, must, it just moves so fast at the moment. I've been keeping an eye on that and I've heard about things in the eye and all sorts of things happening in T-cells and, you know, it's like, wow. It, you know, Ten years ago we were hardly talking about it at all so yeah it's very important it yeah. looks like i chose the right career so i'm not bored never excellent. bored excellent well dr claire gordon not a anaesthetist not a pediatrician not a, <laughs> <laughs> but stuck in the immunology space uh, but loving it thanks so much for being on i'm going to go get to that my pleasure thank you triple ah uh. You are listening to Einstein to go go on three triple hour. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with us now is Professor Charlotte Conn, who is a biophysical chemist from RMIT University. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you. 
It's great to have you in here. We spent so much time chatting before the show because you arrived early, which was great. I yes, I like did. It. I had a tour, which was really fun. Yeah, I like it when people get to see Triple Arts. It's such an amazing space. And uh, Now, you have been working on – we just saw the press release this week. It's very exciting. A new type of oral capsule for essentially delivery of insulin. So this is designed to replace um, physical injections that people take. So yep. first of all, I mean, what's the normal scenario there? You know, for people with diabetes – I assume they have multiple injections a day, in some cases, some oral medications? Uh, in general, diabetes um, treatment is still via injection. Yep. I mean, we have seen the development of insulin pumps yep. and even some inhaled insulin recently, right. but they, um, predominantly it's still via injection. And, and most diabetics need to take a combination of two types, at least two types of insulin, fast-acting insulin with right. a meal to control the blood glucose, yep. and then longer-lasting insulin, which you might take overnight or to control the blood sugar in between meals. Mostly that is given by injection delivery. It's uncomfortable. It, yeah. It's inconvenient for, for young children and older people. That, that really becomes a difficult lifestyle yeah. to manage. Yeah. I know my father's had diabetes for, I don't know, four decades or whatever. And, I, and, and sometimes I think of him just as a pin cushion, you know, like it's just every day. I, I had one flu injection on, on Friday and I'm still moaning about it. Yep. Um, but, you know, he has three, I think, a day or whatever it is. And, and then there's the testing as well, which is often you know, needle-based. Exactly. I, I'm no fan of injections myself, and I have one child who's, who's really, really dislikes injections. Yep. So, you know, I, I feel for people who have to do this and for parents who have to watch their children do this. So an, an oral treatment would, would really be the holy grail for, for diabetes treatment. Yeah. So talk us through what the situation is there, because I think it's it, one of the things I've always been curious about is I can go to the doctors and sometimes they'll give me an injection of antibiotics. Other times they'll give me pills. Yep. Sometimes I drink something that's a fluid. Like what, why is it that with insulin, you know, we have to inject? So the problem with insulin is the type of drug that insulin is. So insulin is a protein drug. Okay. And the problem with proteins is that as soon as they hit your stomach, it's really acidic, they are degraded very rapidly. When you think about it, a lot of our foods are protein-based, milk, meat. Our stomach is designed to break down proteins, mm -hmm. and that's a big problem when it comes to protein drugs. Okay. And that's why all protein drugs in general are given via injection or infusion delivery. Yeah. And how is it, like, the other thing, like, I can imagine, like, if someone, if you're in the hospital and they, they pop it into your arterial system and, you know, it goes into your blood. Yep. But how does it work when you just kind of pop it into the... The fatty area. Yeah, like, so, why does that work? So insulin is what's called a subcutaneous injection. So yep. under the skin, we also have intramuscular yep. um, injections, or you can have intravenous delivery. And I guess you know they'll work out the best way to deliver any type of drug, depending on how long you want that drug to act for. Sometimes you want the drug to act very quickly, mm -hmm. like if you were taking insulin with a meal, you obviously want the response very quickly. And other times you want the response that to last over a prolonged time period. So that'll all be worked out and, and it'll be decided on, on what's the best format to deliver the specific drug. Yeah. Now, you're a you're a biophysical chemist. Is that someone who loved biology, physics and chemistry yeah. but couldn't choose? I like to think of it as a jack of all trades. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Master of all. <laughs> master, right, master of all. Yeah, uh, now, the, but the interesting thing is there is this This is essentially a, a chemistry problem, isn't it? It, it is. So, so really, in my, my interest is in the materials that we use to deliver the insulin. So my research background is really um, in using lipid-based materials to deliver protein drugs. Right. So we're interested in protecting um, the drug, basically um, from enzymatic degradation in the body. We're interested in how the drug releases in the body and how we can control that by the type of material that we choose to deliver the insulin. And lipids being fat. Fat, Fats, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So stuff that's normally in the body anyway. Exactly. So so they're often um, they're often substances which are quite safe and, and non toxic to use. In fact, it's the same technology as is used in the Pfizer and Moderna right. mRNA vaccines. So um, there, the the mRNA that's a very fragile biomolecule. So it's actually packaged inside a lipid nanoparticle when it's delivered in the vaccine, um, and that keeps the mRNA alive for for yeah. a little bit longer until it, it can do its job the immunologists who've been speaking yep. before presumably know a lot more about this than i do but um but it's a very similar technology really protecting these these fragile biomolecules inside 
the lipid, um, right. whether that's a nanoparticle or, in our case, um, a bulk nanomaterial. Yeah. Now, these guys are doing the easy stuff. They just inject it in the arm. You know, it's, it's <laughs> kiddie play. But in, in your case, you've got a, you're talking about something that goes in the mouth, so there's a certain environment of yeah. – enzymes and all sorts of stuff and then it goes down into the esophagus and there's another environment there and then it goes into the stomach and there's another environment there how do you deal with all of that to make sure that the insulin is delivered not only where required but when required yeah so i think because we're so used to eating food and digesting it well you know we can fall into the trap of thinking the digestive system is not that complex Mm. but actually it's a super complex environment it's really hard to deliver protein drugs that way and for us with the capsule there's two main parts so um, the capsule itself is coated in a polymer and that polymer is pH sensitive so the polymer is actually very happy in the very acidic environment in your stomach. It stays intact, so that capsule passes through your stomach intact. And the stomach's very acidic? It's very acidic. Right, okay. So yeah. it depends whether you've eaten or not eaten, but yeah. in general the pH is around 1 to 3, which is okay. really, really acidic. Yeah, really nasty. Really, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to hang out in there. Yeah, I have a vague, not, a vague understanding of uh, acids and bases from, you know, year 12 chemistry yeah. when I gave it up, <laughs> and, and having fish tanks. Um, oh, yes, you know, so, yes. You know, You've got to know a little bit about the acids. All my fish died, so I hope I'm a little bit better at um, (laughs) understanding the stomach acid than understanding the um, (laughs) the fish tank acid. Stop pumping them full of polymers. Um, (laughs) So so you get down there, so so it survives the stomach. Yeah, Yeah. so when the the capsule leaves the stomach, it passes into the duodenum, and the pH there is quite a bit higher. It's Mm -hmm. in the range of around 5.6 to 7. And that's where that polymer starts to break down. So right. your capsule starts to degrade. So you shouldn't put this in a glass of water before you have it, obviously, because that, 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 that fact, would be a problem. In fact, storage and actually protecting the capsule from the contents inside the capsule was one of our problems that wow. we really had to work with yeah. because um, the insulin in the lipid material, there is water there. Right. So we have to stop the capsule from degrading from the inside from out. From the inside out. Yes. Yeah, wow. Yes. So yeah. got to think about both parts of the capsule in yep. fact yep. yep so um anyway when it eventually degrades um inside we have our our lipid material um if you imagine the consistency of that to be a little bit like vaseline very mm-hmm. sticky vaseline yep. um and that contains the the insulin the protein drug is contained within that so what we've shown is that um in the small intestine we have enzymes which will break down proteins as well and being packaged inside the lipid material, you can think of it as being like a sponge with the, with the protein soaked up in the middle of it, um, and that just lets protects it a little bit longer against that enzymatic degradation until um, we can get the drug across the blood across the the gut wall. Wow! And this this version would be for the protracted long-term release or short-term release? For we think diabetes. it's going to be best for the long-lasting insulin, although we need to do more studies in this area. Yep. And that's because when you take something by mouth, there's a lag period yep. before you get the insulin to your bloodstream. So normally when you take insulin with a meal, you want that to act pretty quickly. You don't want to have to think about when you're going to eat half an hour before. Um, so we think probably it's going to be suitable for the long-lasting form of insulin where it doesn't so much matter if there's a little bit of a lag period of, of 30 to 60 minutes before the insulin yeah. hits the bloodstream. I, I love, like, every week on the show I learn something new. And for, for 30-odd years of doing this program, no one's ever explained to me properly why you have to take certain medications before or after food. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now I've got my head around it. It's uh, the acid range of uh, the stomach. And, and it's also actually to do with the fat content of the food. Right. And that's another reason why the lipids work so well because they actually help to transport um, the insulin across the gut wall. Um, Lipids are are what's called hydrophobic or lipophilic. So they... um, for, um, they are transported a little bit more easily across the gut wall, and they'll take the insulin with them. Is the theory, but we're still and we're still doing some more more experiments on that. Yeah, fantastic! I love the term hydrophobic. Don't like water. Exactly. Scared of water. Scared of water. Yes. Scared of water. That's Scared how I of water. That exactly. Yeah. So, coming from someone who knows nothing about the digestive system except for the stomach, shame. There. <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> I never did biology. Um, do you, is there issues with kind of timing of these things in the sense that do some people's digestive systems work faster than others or is everyone kind of 
you know, within the same space. Like, you know, would 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 some somebody digest the the the, the pill faster, and therefore it would go through where it's not supposed to be before it broke down quickly enough? So, um. Not a hundred percent sure. Good mm. question. Obviously, there will be person to person differences in the digestion, um, but I think where it breaks down—that's that's pH controlled. Mm. So that will be the same in everyone. And yes, it might be that for one person, if their digestive system is working a little bit faster, the insulin might hit the bloodstream a little bit faster. Um, but that's—I think—in general, that's okay, and that would. That would be something that would just fall within natural variability. Mm. And it's probably mm. the case with all drugs. I mean, we metabolize drugs differently as people. And that's something that often isn't well accounted for in clinical trials. And it's why we really need diversity of the people that we use in clinical trials. I know there have been issues in the past where a lot of clinical trials were done in, in the Western world. and yeah. and. And, and there were differing responses that yeah. weren't being accounted for in this. So it's a really good mm. question, and it's something that, that we do need to consider. Yeah. Oh, this, is, this has been a problem for the ages, right? That yeah. a lot of scientific stuff was done on, on One middle-aged only. white men. Yes. I'm getting such good help. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All designed just for exactly me. Someone who looks like me, my height, yeah. my, everything. Yeah. Um, not to, I'm not complaining. Uh, yeah. Well, but it is disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, now in terms of... Um, where we're at in terms of the process, Charles. I mean, this is really the chemistry and and the, the the sort of architecture of this that you've been doing. Have you tried it yet in a, a living sort of specimen or like mouse models? Anything? Yes. So we've we've tried it in rats. So okay. we had really good results in in rats. And um, normally these trials um, start in, in mice. Yep. And we had to go to rats, in fact, because we couldn't buy capsules small enough oh, for mice. Wow. Yeah, right, right. So we were we were constrained by the smallest capsule yep. size we could buy. Um, so it was done in a rat model, which was a little bit more difficult, in fact, um, for the researchers. But it worked very, very well. Mm. Um, so our next real um, goal is to try and get this into human clinical trials. Yep. But obviously, um, these cost a small fortune. Yep. And so to do that, we really need an, an industry partner on board i should say that and we've shown it works very well not just for insulin but for a range of different protein and peptide drugs so we're not constrained to just delivering insulin we can try the technology um, with any protein or peptide drug that 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 someone's interested in delivering orally yeah i think i mean that's the real message isn't it that what you're talking about here is a new type of architectural understanding of how to deliver drugs to the body and that takes into account the body itself, which is often not considered in such detail as what you've just talked us through. So I think um, there's, some, there's some pretty exciting options there for the future. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much for, for coming in and chatting to us. It's been great learning about this. I know it's, it's an exciting uh, new area, and I'm sure anyone who has diabetes, knows someone with diabetes, or, you know, as, as is the case with me, has given a lot of interim muscular injections over the over the years to family members like it is not a pleasant experience and if we can get around that and get into a simpler more controlled fashion that'll be a great outcome yeah thanks so much yeah we're really we're really excited and and hope we can we can get this into the clinic and helping patients yep just need that industry partner industry partners listening (laughs) contact professor charlotte con a biophysical chemist at rmit university uh we've got about five minutes left of the show ailey got some news for us i do some exciting news do tell. I, I feel like we're we're having an unofficial theme every time i'm in a fungi news. <laughs> you need to I get that like checked we've, out <laughs> we've, talk, we've talked about fungi a lot but this is a uh a, a new study that's just come out of uh the the nature journal materials degradation oh one of my favorites this week. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a page turn of that one yep. um but look it's a really exciting study um and it's got to do with plastics okay so you know we all know plastics are a big problem there's a lot of them you know we try to recycle them but really we're great with it we're, yeah, yeah 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 to put it bluntly yeah. we are yeah. um you know it's a big waste problem big big issues but this uh this study out of uh, the university of sydney actually mm. has just uh found a couple of species of fungi that apparently are found in backyards and they you know did some pre-treating chucked these two fungi together and found that they could break down films of polypropylene, which is a very common type of plastic that you find in bottle lids and, and things like that. Whoa. They could they could break that down 
in 140 days. Completely. The whole lot? The whole lot. That's Just a, a thin film of plastic, but it was 140 days. And they did it with a couple of different pieces. They did just one piece of, of polypropylene, and then they actually got uh, another piece of polypropylene and coated it in a thin film of aluminium as well because, you know, some products have that kind of coating and, and things like that. Also broke down in the same amount of time. And so this combination of these two different types of, of fungi um, – worked together and and as I said they needed a bit of pre-treatment I think it was with some heat and some UV radiation but these are not uncommon kind of environmental conditions that you would usually find in for example a rubbish tip you know Mm. you've got things exposed you've got you know heat being generated from you know um, materials um, rotting away and so with that simple pre-treatment they found that about I think it was about a quarter of the materials broke down within 90 days and then by the 140 day mark um, they were all gone and so this was really big news Um, I mean this kind of stuff has has been shown to happen before Uh, Mm. there's been there's been other studies around the world that have been looking at these fantastic ways of breaking down plastics including with fungi but this this study was the fastest that's ever happened you know instead of kind of a, a year or multiple months this is you know Three, three months, less yeah, than three fast, months. It's, it's it? very yeah. fast. Yeah. So, I mean, look, got to be upscaled like all of these things. This is only a couple of thin pieces of plastic, but they, they found, you know, they kind of photographed it throughout and it's really interesting that the, the, the plastic was breaking down, started getting little pock marks in it where the, the, the fungi was digesting this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the next big question is what's happening? Where does it go? Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> what and comes so that's out? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's one of the, the big questions. Well, you would hope it's not plastic. There. Well, you yeah. would hope so. Yeah. But no, apparently they were, they were breaking it down the same way that they break down bacteria but it's just these different combinations so i thought that was a a really piece of good news story for the week because you know if this kind of stuff can be upscaled plastics problem can be uh reduced significantly because lord knows we have a massive i might just start covering myself in fungi so that any any microplastics that (laughs) i pick up from the environment get taken care of see this is this is the other thing too is these are common backyard fungi and and you know i was reading some other stuff around this about fungi that are found in in compost for example so imagine a situation where you can add a little bit of fungi to compost and all of a sudden you can start digesting your own plastics it's as the, well as your, the decade your of fungus not, i know it not is. just because of the last of us but because of yeah. i know it's amazing fungi <laughs> it's cool do stuff. amazing things oh, so there you me. go i'm gonna have to move on you know because i've been on neurology and a few other things yeah, as no, my we big need fungi items. experts in here i reckon Maybe fungi is the yeah, next big thing. I agree. Yeah, I'll seek out some fungi experts. <laughs> all right, folks. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ellie. Great no worries. stuff. Uh, huge thank you to all our guests today. Uh, big uh, promo there, folks, for the day of immunology. Google that. There's some great talks coming up. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We will tell you that again next week when we talk to you about more science. Until then, we're going to hand over to the next team. Have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.